Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined uh, by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Well, I'm now back from vacation, which I guess is a good and bad thing. You're worse than you were then. Um, you were doing great. I... And no, less it, so. Yeah, I mean, but... I don't know how many other people feel like this, but by the end of a week of vacation, I am to an extent kind of ready to get back, get back to the normal groove. But that also means you have to be back in the normal work groove. So it is what what we do. So it's not too bad. Not too bad at all. You know, I met the uh, because I I uh, preached for you on a Wednesday here not long ago. I met the guy that calls you resident theologian in training there at Tuttle. Oh, good, good. We we do have we, we do have one. Most of the members have different names for me, but we won't get into that. But we, we do have one that refers to me as resident theologian in training. So, he said uh, he he blamed our uh, hiatuses whenever we have an episode on you traveling. Which isn't completely fair because we've <laughs> we've missed several because well, of me being I, sick. We also like I, I also but, blame uh, God a little. He blamed you. We and missed I didn't several because of weather. So. I think we actually were <laughs> missed two weeks because of losing power and True. not being able to see. I can always do it because I live walking distance from the church. So if we've got power, I can record. You, on the other hand, have to actually get out. Yes, and yes. drive. So technically I'm also within walking distance. It's just a really long walk. So well, technically everyone's within walking distance. Yeah. But it's that's a that's a theology of walking. We'll talk about that in another episode. Um today though, uh, we're we're glad to be back. We filmed two or we recorded two uh while you were away on vacation. Uh so you got our our part 1 and part 2 of Previous the previous episodes we didn't we didn't skip any beats vacation did not stop us uh, this time at all uh, so if you haven't listened to those go back and listen to well all of our episodes this is episode twenty two so we've got plenty there in the catalog for you to check out and listen to um, most of them pretty good I don't have any in mind that are not pretty good but I'm sure that not all of them are great I don't know. Go listen to them all. You tell us which ones you don't. Like. I've I, I've enjoyed all of them. If, if this is the first one you're you've listened to, go back and listen to. I think our highest ones have been. We did a couple on liberation theology, racism early on. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the Christmas song, Hallelujah, David Bathsheba. Um, yeah. It, every time I look at it, there's like another five, ten people who've listened to it. That one keeps getting. And uh, our sanctification one actually did really well. That that actually surprised me oh, nice. a little bit. I didn't think that that would uh, get... I thought that would be one of our lower ones, but there you go. That seems to be what other people like. Well, along similar lines, uh, we'll be dealing with what happened at the cross, uh, dealing with atonement today and various things theories of atonement and this will we're going to cover six theories uh spencer will talk a little bit about his uh his preferred theory if that's the way that uh, maybe i should phrase that uh which one he thinks works the best least problematic of the six Uh, and then this will form a basis for us for several episodes that's that's the note i have several episodes it could be this could be a 20 parter i don't know uh, I haven't decided yet, so lot. we're just going to keep yeah. it at several. So more than several. one, uh, less than a hundred, somewhere. Okay, that's our range. That's your guarantee. Uh, and everybody who is listening and going back through and listening to older ones and checking back in on those and staying up to date with us uh, and encouraging us to, hey, you know, I missed your episode because it was icy and I miss not having an episode. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for sharing these with other people. Uh, You can find these anywhere that you get your podcasts and we encourage you as well to 
uh, to get a hold of us on Facebook, you can reach either of us. Uh, you can also get to Spencer on Twitter uh, if you want to talk to him there. And you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Give us questions for us to deal with in the future, uh, comments, or just you know offer your thoughts on, on stuff. Or criticisms, we'll take those too. That's all right uh, with us. All right, Spencer, we're going to talk about what happened at the cross. You've, you've got for us, and, uh, and, and I have to say this at the beginning, I think, uh, this will be true of everybody, as we talked about off-air here. We're probably familiar with several, if not all, of these theories in some way, shape, or form. We may not know the, the names specifically that are ascribed to them. But uh, we've probably heard or maybe even said some of these uh, theories, just everybody, without knowing uh, exactly what we were talking about. I do not personally, uh, I'm not well-educated enough on this subject to really have a formulated opinion myself. So this is, uh, for me, even going to be pretty uh, pretty enlightening, I hope. So, uh I'm excited to get into it. Uh, there are, are six theories that we're going to cover, and I'm just going to let you run through them. What's our first theory? Yeah, so before I mention the first theory, a couple of kind of background things that I just want to mention. First is that all six of these theories, I'll mention scriptures that go to support them. So uh, as any of us who have read through most of the the New Testament uh, know that different authors, different passages talk about what Jesus did at the cross in different ways through different lenses. Yes. I think in other episodes we've used the example of a diamond that has different aspects to it, and you look through it from different angles. You see different colors. You see different hues. You can see a flaw through one aspect that you can't see through any of the other ones. It's still the same diamond, but it's just different ways of looking at it. And that's kind of what not only Scripture itself does with what Jesus did at the cross. It's still the cross. It's the same event of salvation just looked at from different angles, uh, thought about in different ways, because what Jesus did at the cross was so all-encompassing, so huge, to fully understand it, you have to look at it from these different angles. And mm. not only Scripture does that, but that's what theories of atonement do. They they try to kind of bring together those major themes that we find in the New Testament about what happened at the cross and kind of bring them together coherently so that we can begin to think about what actually happened at the cross. And in trying to answer a question like that of what happened at the the cross, a theories of atonement go a little bit deeper than on a simple level, we can say that Jesus saved us. God saved us right. at the cross. But what theories of atonement do is try to dig a little bit deeper than that and kind of ask, you could almost say scientifically of what actually happened. Like, how did Jesus save us at the cross? What was it about who Jesus was and what he did that allowed that salvation to happen. And so that's kind of what the theories of atonement do by bringing together those different angles, really those different voices in the New Testament, because most of the different angles you get are from different writers, which is interesting. Paul has one tends to have one preferred way of looking at things, and you know maybe John has a slightly different way of looking at it, all looking at the same thing, just standing at different points around the cross, looking at Jesus on the cross and trying to talk about what happened there uh, through the cross and the resurrection, because the cross doesn't mean anything without the, the resurrection. So that's important to keep in mind as well. But the, the first theory of, of atonement is what is called ransom theory. It says that the death of Christ was a ransom sacrifice, usually said to have been paid to Satan or even at times to death itself. In some views, uh, people say that the, the ransom was paid to God, the Father, in satisfaction for the bondage and debt on humanity as a result of sin. So 
the idea with ransom theory is that all human beings are sinful. And as a result of our sin, we are in slavery. We're in bondage uh, to the powers of sin and death. Uh, We owe a debt to the powers of sin and death because of our sin. And so what Jesus did is the cross was he he paid that debt we owe, or uh, maybe one way to think of it, he paid the price to purchase us from slavery, that through his death and resurrection, through the shedding of his blood, that was the, the price to purchase us back from our slavery to sin and death, to save us from those powers of sin and death. That's what ransom theory says, that there was a ransom. Again, there's several ways to, to think about it, uh, but Jesus paid some kind of price, some kind of debt, some kind of ransom to save us. And we actually see Jesus use that language in Matthew 20 and Mark 10. Jesus says that the Son of Man came uh, not uh, to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe some of you, that's the first thing that came to your mind when you started thinking about Jesus uh, paying a ransom. We sing the the song, he uh, paid the debt. Right, so we even in in our worship we we sing about this idea of Jesus paying a debt that we owed, but a debt that we could not pay for ourselves, a debt because of sin. And I, I mentioned this just to say that the, none of these theories really just kind of came out of nowhere. They've been around for a while. Ransom theory originated in the early church, uh, as far as we know, it seemed it originated with Origen, who lived between one eighty four and 253. So very early on, this concept of thinking about Jesus as paying a debt has been around for a while. And something that, again, most of us have probably heard in one way, in one way or another, um, and even sing about in church. Yeah, the, uh, the song he paid a debt is what came to mind for me first out of those things. Uh, but I, I think to before we get into number two here, uh, one thing to keep in mind with all of these two is that they all seem to have some amount of truth to them uh, because of, well, I mean, this one here, it's one of six. We're dealing with, uh, especially in the next five, uh, we'll have quotes out of Romans uh, that seem to support... Uh, but that doesn't mean that they fully support the whole idea here. Um, but each of these is going to have some amount of truth to it. You have Jesus coming to pay a debt, to ransom. Uh, okay, that's, that's in the text. It's there, uh, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean the whole thing is true of, well, he, so he came to pay a ransom to Satan. Well, maybe that's the that's the part where it break down, breaks down uh, potentially here. And we'll, we'll cover those uh, issues uh, with some of these other theories here in a bit. Uh, but do keep that in mind. And that's what I was saying at the beginning is we may have talked about or sung these things without really knowing what the, the names of the theories are. Uh, and so we're probably familiar with these in one way or another, uh, but not fully aware of uh, how all of the how all of these things are defined and how they play out. Uh, so that's ransom theory number one. Number two uh, has a fun name here. Uh, Christus Victor. Did I say it Christus right? Victor? Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Latin. It was uh, right uh, developed by a man by the name of Gustav Allen in uh, 1931. And the reason that I bring this up second is it was his kind of reinterpretation of the ransom theory. He saw some issues with the ransom theory, which uh, okay. some of those we'll, we'll bring up here at the end. And so his kind of reinterpretation of ransom theory was that uh, Jesus' uh, death is the victory over the powers which hold humankind in bondage, the powers of sin, the powers of death, the powers of the devil. So what Jesus did through his death and resurrection was conquer those powers, claim victory over them. So maybe one way to think about that is uh, competing kingdoms, the kingdom of sin and death versus the the kingdom of God. And the decisive victory for the kingdom of God, uh, what allowed the kingdom of God to fully take control 
over the world that had been taken control of by sin and death was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is the primary imagery that Paul uses in Romans, uh, really the second half of Romans 5 through Romans chapter 8. In the second half of Romans 5, sin is personified. A sin and death become characters. Uh, Paul describes them as they're allowed to enter into the world and to set up a kingdom, and that kingdom spreads throughout all the world. It, it, the kingdom of sin and death has been established, and all human beings have been taken as slaves in the kingdom of sin. And sin's kind of presented as this cosmic force or as this king that sets up its kingdom, which is in contrast to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And we see these uh, two kingdoms, these two kings, sitting behind Paul's argument in Romans 5 through Romans 8, which concludes with the way that Paul ends this section of Romans in Romans 8, is he says uh, in Romans 8, beginning in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You have that conquering victory language there. Mm. He says, For neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul kind of ends this section with saying, We are conquerors. Those who are in Jesus, we're the ones who are victorious over all these other powers, over all these other kingdoms, specifically over the powers of the kingdom of sin and death, over the powers of Satan. We are now the ones who are victorious, which is the culmination of a much longer and more in-depth argument that Paul makes uh, throughout the whole of the second major section of Romans there, chapters 5 through chapter 8. He gives, uh, just for those of you listening at home, uh, he gives, uh, I, they would be smaller versions of the argument, uh, but like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, uh, holds this sort of idea about the prince of the power of the air, and then here's what Jesus does and what that means for us uh, in our victory, Colossians 1 as well. Uh, so Paul is Paul is very much on uh, this conquering victory of of Christ here in in various places and he wouldn't be the only one John's gospel as well uh very well, and present I, with that I was thinking about the the gospels too cuz I I think that's kind of present in all the gospels I'm teaching the go- I just started teaching the gospel of Mark here at at Tuttle and you see in the way the pretty much all the gospels present the story of Jesus is this conflict between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of of God and maybe the best way to see that is through exorcism, through Jesus' interaction with demons, is the uh, is an early example, is kind of a foreshadowing, if you will, of what Jesus has come to do. That the kingdom of God is coming and it's taking power over everything, including the powers of evil that control the world. And so you you see that not really explicitly necessarily, but it kind of sits behind much of what we see throughout the New Testament. Yes. Yeah. This this idea is is everywhere with several of the the authors and even explicitly Jesus's language of the kingdom of heaven uh coming and him ushering that in. So uh there are a lot of places you can go uh textually to support uh at least part of this idea. So, all right, number three is recapitulation theory. Uh, It's a big word. Yeah, talk to us about that one. Recapitulation theory. Sees, uh, in in this theory, Christ is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where Adam failed. Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did, and because of his union with humanity, leads humankind on to eternal Life. Uh, this dates all the way back to Irenaeus, uh, 130, who lived between 130 and 202. So, second century here uh, is where the idea of recapitulation theory yeah. comes in. And uh, we see this actually explicitly. That's Paul's argument in Romans 5 12 through 21. Right. Uh, he compares and contrasts Adam 
and Jesus. He says uh, that through the one man, Adam, sin came into the world and set up its kingdom. And through the one man, Jesus, grace and life have now come into the world. So it, it's also built upon the the foundation we see in Scripture and that was very common with Jews in the first century, that Adam is kind of a prototype for humanity, that what was true of Adam is true of all human beings. I think sometimes we've seen where John says that uh, sin is uh, lust of the uh, flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that we see all of that in Adam from the very beginning, that our struggles with sin today are really no different than what Adam struggled with in the garden. So the, the struggles that Adam has as a human being are the same struggles that we all have as human beings. And through Adam and the first sin, sin was able to come into the world. And as Paul argues once again in Romans, that sin has spread to all people. And so what Jesus does is he comes and lives the perfect, sinless human life. He succeeds where Adam and the rest of us as human beings have failed. And through that, Jesus re-undoes uh, what Adam did. As Paul says, in the way that Adam brought sin and death, Jesus brings grace and life. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways Jesus is able to do that is because of his union with humanity. Because he is fully a human being, through living that fully human life, succeeding where Adam failed, He's able to undo the the sin that's in the world because of Adam and allows us to kind of be be set free and be renewed as human beings. And that's actually something I'll give a little plug. I don't know what week we're going to do this, but one of the questions that we're going to ask based on this has to do with why did Jesus have to be a human being? And that's kind of where this theory is going to be helpful as kind of background information for us and thinking about, well, for Jesus to reverse what the problem of Adam and humanity itself, Jesus had to be a human being. Hmm. Otherwise, all of that doesn't work. And we'll delve into that uh, in later episodes. But that's kind of the idea behind this. It's very focused on not only our humanity, but the significance of the humanity of Jesus and fixing the problems that we as human beings have in relation to sin. Okay. Yeah, very good. I don't have any much to uh, to add there, though I'm looking forward to our additional episode. This is news to me, too, listeners. So I'm looking forward to that one. That I'm just cool. making stuff up as we go. That's why it'll be less than more than one, less than 100 parts. Uh, to atonement somewhere in there uh number four satisfaction theory what's that all about so this is another one that most of us are probably familiar with even if we don't know the the name yeah this one says that christ suffered crucifixion as a substitute for human sin satisfying god's just wrath against humankind's transgression uh, due to christ's infinite Merit. This dates back to Anselm. And we see this in uh, Romans 1 and verse 18, where Paul begins really the first major section of Romans. And he begins, if you're familiar with Romans, by laying out the problem of sin that all human beings have. He begins that section by saying that the wrath of God is coming against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's how Paul begins that section. So we get the idea of the the wrath of God, which is kind of central to satisfaction theory. God is a just God, and so God is forced to punish sin. As Paul says there in Romans 1.18, his wrath is coming against all sin and ungodliness. And the problem is, is that, as Paul says later on, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all deserving of the justice and the wrath of God. And so what Jesus did by going to the cross is he became our substitute, the substitute for human sin. His death on the cross was in place of our own 
death, that his death on the cross satisfied that justice and wrath of God that should be coming against all of us because we're all sinners, but is not because that was satisfied in Jesus. And so those of us who are in Christ, that demand of death, of justice, of wrath has been satisfied in Jesus because this is key to satisfaction theory. It focuses on the merit of Jesus, Jesus as the sinless human being, the spotless lamb. We see that imagery in the the New Testament because of that merit is what gave Jesus the ability to satisfy God's justice and God's wrath. None of us could have done that because we're not perfect. We're not sinless. We're not the spotless lamb. But because Jesus was, that merit is what allowed him to satisfy God's need for justice. Yeah, and I was going to mention about the the lamb thing is what came to mind for me there of what, again, John's gospel or Hebrews uh, presents to us to some degree, uh, this idea. Paul also kind of gets into this in 2 Corinthians 5, though it's more positively stated. It's not about the wrath coming, but that judgment is coming and we await uh, our uh, our Savior, but for our sake for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, some of that idea uh, is presented uh, there. So uh, we will talk here in the end about some of the the issues because again, there's some amount of grounding for all of these ideas, but that doesn't make all of them completely true necessarily as far yeah. as the theories concerned. And you could. Under satisfaction theory, you could probably, that's also where you would probably put a lot of the uh, discussions of Jesus as a sacrifice to God, that as Jesus is this atoning sacrifice, is satisfying God's demand for justice, is satisfying God's wrath, and so... uh, Those kind of language, you made me think of that when you mentioned Hebrews, Paul also has that language in Romans chapter three, yeah, um, and we see it all throughout the the New Testament. But that kind of sacrificial type of language uh, is typically uh, talked about in a way that falls under this idea of satisfying God through that sacrifice, or because of that sacrifice. And the only reason Jesus was able to be that sacrifice is because he was the spotless lamb. Mm. So because of that merit. All right, uh, that's four down. Theory number five is penal substitution. What's all that about? Penal substitution or penal substitutionary atonement, which is its long name, is one is probably the primary way that most of us, and for that matter, most Western Christians, at least most American Christians, think about the cross, think about Jesus. At at least it's for most, I think, probably the first place that they go. So a penal substitution says that Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, was punished or penalized, that's where the penal comes in, in place of sinners. So that's the the substitution. Jesus uh, took the penalty and substitution of sinners, thus satisfying the demands of justice, uh, so God can justly forgive Sin. So, penal substitution is very close to satisfaction theory, but where satisfaction theory is going to be focused a little bit more on God's wrath, a little bit more on Christ's merit, a little bit thinking a little bit more in terms of a sacrifice. Penal substitution is focusing a little bit more on God's justice. It says that God can only be a just God and justly forgive sins if somebody takes the penalty for sins. And so penal substitution says that Christ made the choice to take the penalty in place of all of us as sinners so that God can justly forgive sins. Mm. And so it's much satisfaction is satisfying God's wrath and justice. Penal substitution is saying this allows God to justly forgive sins. It's focused a little less on satisfying God and more on God's predicament of, how can I be a just God and deal with sin at the same time? 
which is actually part of, or the primary question I think that Paul's answering in in Romans of uh, with God with the righteousness of God is how can God be true to the covenant to Abraham and the sinfulness of humanity be a just God at the same time? Yeah, that and that, so penal substitution is going to bring that up a little bit more than satisfaction. That just and justifier idea um, that he pursues there in Rome, or that's included in your in the discussion here that we've been seeing uh, through parts of Romans. Um, okay, uh, last one here uh, is moral influence, and I have this is one that I don't really, as far as the term goes, uh, fully understand. So explain that to me, moral influence. I'll do my best. So moral influence says that Christ died as the demonstration of God's love, a demonstration which can change the hearts and the minds of the sinners, uh, turning them back to God. It was developed by a man by the name of Abelard uh, as an alternative to Anselm's uh, satisfaction theory. He wanted to change uh, people's perception of God uh, from an offended, harsh, and judgmental God to a loving God. And so we see an example of this going back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Uh, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then, as we saw a moment ago, he goes on to say that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God yeah. in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the idea of this is that uh, Abelard would say that the, the primary thing that was going on in Jesus was demonstrating the, the love of God, that it's the the love of God and only God's love that has the ability to transform the lives of people, to get people to repent, to get people to turn from sin, and to come back to God. Uh, this theory is not focused a whole lot on uh, penalties for sin, on wrath or justice, but on changing the lives of the sinner to bring, to get the sinner to make the choice to come back to God. And this is something that we've talked about before. Uh, we, we've talked in previous episodes about is God's wrath, is punishment, is hell a, a good way to make a, a Christian by, in essence, scaring them into Christianity? And we've made the argument that that's not a very effective way. It's not right. the, the best way. That the the best way to change the minds and the hearts of people is through the love of God, the love that God has for us, not by scaring them into it, by presenting God as this vengeful, wrathful God that's looking for a reason to send them to hell or is looking for a reason to stomp on them, but rather presenting God as a God who loves them and is doing everything to save them. And so... This is where Abelard's uh, view comes in, is focusing on the love of God that transforms the lives of people. And again, as we've argued before, I think that's the only way that it happens. I don't think you create a true follower of Jesus by scaring them into compliance, but you create a true follower of Jesus by causing them to fall in love with Jesus because of the love that God has shown for them in Jesus. And so that's where the moral influence comes in, is that it's the way that we see the love of God in Jesus that transforms us to come back to God. And I think maybe you could also, I don't know if Abelard would have said this, but I think you can also put under moral influence that the love and the life we see in Jesus, we can then model in our own lives. Jesus stands as a moral model for us of living a life of love, of living a life in relationship with God, of living a life in the way that God has created and designed us to live. I think that mm. I, I would want to put that somewhere when we talk about atonement. And I think whether or not Abelard, who created the moral influence theory, would, I would kind of want to put that as a little caveat under the concept of moral influence as well of having that image for us to imitate. Okay. So those are, those are our six theories. Uh, the say, I'm sure that there are others in some way, but that kind of covers the uh, covers the whole range of uh, general and prominent theories about atonement. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the potential issues with these various theories. I don't know if you want to state here, kind of, this is the one that I think it is, and then 
talk about your issues with the others and then come back to, I don't see issue with this one really. Uh, or if you just kind of want to go through and <laughs> just start listing off potential issues and, and then reveal which yeah, one that the, you've got. We'll, uh, we'll just kind of go through, uh, each of these, because I, I, I honestly think that there's issues with all of them. Okay. All of them find support in scripture, but not all of them are fully satisfactory as an explanation for what happened in Jesus, what happened at the cross. Okay. Well, do you want to start um, with ransom theory and its its potential issues? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, uh, but I think that there's a way that we can bring them all together, which is kind of how we'll sum up. Okay. Uh, cool. That gives us kind of a, a full view of what's going on here. So the first one that we talked about, ransom theory, Jesus paying the the debt that we owed but could not pay, right? The, yeah. uh, the main problem with ransom theory is you have the question of who is the ransom paid to? Typically, it's a ransom paid to, to Satan or to sin or to death. We're slaves to these forces, these powers, and Jesus pays our debt, uh, pays what it takes to purchase us from our slave masters in order to set us free. The theological problem with that is that if God is forced to pay a debt to something else, it doesn't matter what it is, if God's forced to pay a debt to something or someone else in order to save us, then God is being forced to do something by that other thing or that other being, making that other thing or being more powerful than God, which for obvious reasons is very problematic. We have problems when God is forced by anything else to do something and God not doing it out of his own will and desire to do it because it makes the other thing more powerful. We think about that in terms of our own lives. If you're forced to do something, Whatever is forcing you to do it is more powerful than you, even if it's within you, right? If you're, I I know I I can be very OCD about things. And when I do something, when I feel forced to do something because of OCD, that OCD has power over me. It's a part of me, but it's taken power over me. Uh, If I'm taken to prison, it's because the penal system, the police officer has more power than I do. And that's the problem that you can start getting into with ransom theory sure. is, well, who did Jesus pay this ransom to? Again, we see it in Scripture. Jesus says he came to pay a ransom. But if we have ransom theory as our primary way of thinking about it, we have a lot of problems in trying to explain who the ransom was paid to. Um, okay, I can see that. Um, okay, what's what's the issue with uh, Christus Victor? Christus Victor, so Jesus took power over, uh, he conquered the powers of sin, death, Satan. One of the problems there is you, you're you left with questions of the the wrath of God, the, the justice of God, the penalty of sin. Because we see, again, I keep going back to Romans because we see most all of these in Romans. Paul talks about the wrath of God. He talks about the penalty of sin being right. death. And even though in Christus Victor we get, yeah, Jesus conquered death, he conquered that penalty, You st- it still leaves you with some questions about the, the justice uh, and righteousness of, of God uh, to forgive sin. So it, it may, it may Christus Victor, at least uh, traditionally, you've, you fall into some issues and, well, it doesn't fully explain some of those other issues that we see brought up throughout the New Testament. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Number three, uh, issues with recapitulation theory. So Jesus is the new Adam. He succeeded where Adam failed. And so he does, he undoes the the wrongs of Adam. Um, you, You still have the same problem kind of with, with recapitulation theory as you do with uh, Christus Victor. You, you're still left with questions of uh, the the justice of, of God in justly dealing with sin that aren't adequately answered. 
Um, and you're, you're still kind of left with, with the question of, again, in Romans 5 through 8, sin is presented as this force that has taken all human beings and even creation itself, we see in Romans 8, under its authority. It's they, Even all human beings, all creation has been taken as a slave in this kingdom. And so how does uh, Jesus as the new Adam begin to reverse all of these problems of sin in the world and within creation itself? Uh, Recapitulation has a a difficult time explaining about how renewal of all things, like we see in Romans chapter 8, can take place. And one reason is because it's primarily focused on human beings and not the way that sin has embedded itself into the created order itself. Okay. And so recapitulation would have a difficult time explaining that aspect of sin that Paul brings up in places such as Romans 8. Okay. Uh, what about uh, issues with uh, satisfaction theory? So I'm actually going to bring satisfaction and penal substitution together. Okay. Because as we mentioned earlier, they're very similar, yeah. just kind of focusing. They're almost saying the same things, just focusing on different aspects of uh dealing with God's justice and God's wrath. Sure. The main problem with both of those is that if they're your primary way of thinking about God and salvation, God becomes an angry, wrathful uh, God who is just looking on the one hand for a reason to punish us, a reason to send us to hell. And either you have the son, Jesus, saying, well, you know, I'll go give my life to make God the Father happy uh, so that he doesn't send everybody to hell. Or you have God saying, the only thing that's going to make me happy is to kill my son. That you, mm. It can quickly get into that view of God, which is a very bad view of God, a very troubling view of God, and an impossible view of God for many people to get behind. Sure. This God who's just angry and wrathful all the time is looking for a reason to punish us, and the only way to make him happy is to kill his son. That's kind of what you get into with both satisfaction theory and penal substitution because you're dealing with, on the one hand, God's wrath. We, God's mad. We have to make him happy, so he's going to kill his son. Or with penal substitution, God's just, so he, he can't deal with sin without death. And so once again, it's, I need to kill my son so that I can forgive sins. And even there, you have the potential of saying that death or blood is more powerful than God to say that I can't forgive sins sure. without death. Um, so you get into some theological issues there too. But the main thing is how God is viewed, which is why, moving on to the sixth, Abelard created the moral influence theory sure, because he didn't like the view of God presented by satisfaction and penal substitution. But the problem with his is that it, like some of the other ones, it doesn't deal with the the wrath and justice of God, which are things. We see those right. in the New Testament. Uh, the moral influence, while true, at least in part, it is helpful to think about the fact that people are only changed through an encounter with the love of God. But you, you, the, you still have the problem of, well, how do we deal with the powers of sin and death? How, how does God justly deal with these powers? How, how can these be forgiven? You don't really get much of an answer to that in moral influence. It's just kind of left floating out there in the air. Based on your uh, your comments on that last one there, really these last three kind of all together, um, I think I know where you might be going with your, your favored choice here uh, and how it all wraps together. So uh, which which one of these uh, do you think fits the best with what we see, uh, I guess, in Scripture slash through Paul's layout in Romans and what he's arguing, since most of these come from there? Uh, which one works the best, and, and how, do, how do these things tie together, as you uh, said a little while ago? So my preferred one, and what I would argue should be the primary lens of us thinking about Jesus and the cross, is Christus Victor. That what Jesus did through his life, his death, 
and his resurrection was conquer the powers of sin and death. That sin and death had set up a kingdom in the world, and that kingdom had taken everything and everybody as a slave to it. Sin and death ruled the world. But when Jesus came, as he teaches in the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus. And what Jesus did at the cross was he took sin upon himself. Specifically, he took the penalty of sin in death and died at the hands of sin as an innocent, sinless, perfect human being. That perfect sacrifice and took that penalty upon him, but then three days later rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering the penalty for sin, conquering the biggest weapon that sin has at its disposal in death, thus conquering the powers of sin and death, Mm. bringing about the kingdom of God in the world that has now taken the power that sin and death has in the world away from it. And we see this in the now but not yet aspect of the kingdom. It's happened now. Those of us who are a part of the kingdom have already experienced the conquering power of the kingdom of heaven. But in the fullness of heaven that is to come, when Christ returns and the kingdom of heaven comes in its fullness, sin and death will once and for all, as John says in Revelation, be thrown into the lake of fire. They will be done away with because Jesus has defeated them. The kingdom of God has conquered them. The kingdom of God is ruling in the world in part, and we're waiting for it to come in its fullness. Mm. And I think that's the the best explanation on the one hand because it it presents us a God who's not looking uh, for every way possible to condemn us, but a God that's doing everything possible to save us by doing everything that it took to win the victory over the powers of sin and death. I think Christus Victor does a better job than the other ones of being more all-encompassing, including creation itself that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 8, as well as humanity and God's dealing with the problem of sin that's in all aspects of the world. But I also like Christus Victor because I think all of the other ones fit very well underneath them. I don't think we need to throw any of them out because as we've seen, they're all supported by Scripture. But I think it may be helpful for us to understand all of them in light of a Christus Victor framework, within a Christus Victor framework. Because if you remember, the problem that I gave with Christus Victor is it doesn't give us solid answers about the justice of God, for example. But if you bring, if you set that as your boundary, as your primary, and then you put all these other ones in it, now you have a way to deal with God's justice. So for example, we think of uh, we'll just I'll go back through these real quick. You have ransom theory. Jesus is a ransom uh, sacrifice. You can fit that into what what how did Jesus conquer the powers of sin and death? Well, w- one way is he paid the ransom to set us free from our slavery in that kingdom through conquering and defeating the kingdom of sin and death. He was able to set us free from that slavery. He was able to to pay the the debt, the ransom that it took to set us free when he conquered the the powers of sin and death. The rich recapitulation theory, Jesus as the new Adam, Jesus as the perfect human being becomes that perfect sacrifice for human beings to conquer the powers, of, the powers that sin and death have over human beings. We're going to talk about that, as I said in a later episode, about how uh, to defeat the, the powers of, of sin and death over humanity, Jesus had to be a human being to solve the problems of Adam. Hmm. Satisfaction, penal substitution. You've got God's wrath. We're going to talk about God's wrath later on, more in a way of handing us over to the consequences of sin, being death. You have God's justice and having to justly deal with this problem of sin. Well, how do you deal with God's wrath, God's handing us over? How do you deal with God's justice? Well, one way to think about that is you conquer those powers of injustice. You conquer and defeat the the control that sin and death have, which uh, keeps us from having to fall victim to the wrath, the handing over of God, and allows God to to justly deal with with sin. 
and then again the the moral influence through God coming to earth, going to a cross, raising from the grave to conquer the powers of sin and death, to set us free from them controlling our ultimate destiny, we see the love of God, the love of God that's able to transform our minds and hearts to turn from sin and to become citizens of this kingdom that has now taken control over the powers of sin and death. So that's why, again, we don't adequately uh, answer every question. There's still problems, even with the method that I just suggested, but I think at least uh, in the knowledge that I have, it's the best way to think about Jesus and the cross is to put is to keep all of these in mind, but within the framework of Christus Victor, of Jesus conquering the powers of sin and death. Um, I think that leaves us with less questions and less problems than any other approach. Well, okay. Uh, we're going to spend some time on atonement as kind of our, our backdrop. So uh, what do you think? Do you think that this is a good, uh, that Christus Victor is a good umbrella under which or over which these other things uh, fall? Uh, or do you favor one of these others? Maybe some of the issues we noted you don't really see as issues. Uh, what do you think? You can let us know. Uh, you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Get a hold of us on Facebook or go and message Spencer and follow him and retweet everything of his on Twitter over there. Uh, this has been our, our first kind of foundation base episode for a bunch of uh, a bunch of atonement talk here in the future. We hope you'll join us for those as well. Uh, I'm Jack and that's Spencer. We'll see you next time.